Well, howdy, High Point. I have survived a week and a half of being a bachelor, even though my dinner last night at 11.30 p.m. was a zucchini cheese taco. So, yeah. It's a good thing I'm having dessert every day at these connection meetings, so make sure I'm gonna, you know, be unhealthy. Okay, um, if you have a Bible, open it to Mark chapter 14. There should be one in front of you in the pew there, and uh, if you need the page number, it's 1578. 1578. I'm going to read Mark 14, 10 to 42, and then 66 to 72. And then I'm going to preach for a while. And we will eventually. Just kidding. Um, So I'm starting in verse 10, chapter 14, verse 10, which is actually on 1579. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. And when evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. And while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it has been written about him, but woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him to have not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. 
Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Can you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to say to him. And returning a third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting enough? The hour has come. Look, the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Now 66, right at the beginning of the next page. While Peter was below in the courtyard, this is after Jesus has been arrested and he's in a particular house to be tried by the Jewish priests. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And went out into the entryway And when the servant girl saw him there She said again to those standing around This fellow is one of them And again he denied it And after a little while those standing near said to Peter Surely you are one of them For you're a Galilean He began to call down curses on himself And he swore to them I don't know this man you're talking about Immediately the rooster crowed the second time Then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. That's a cheery passage, isn't it? Hmm. The world we live in the world you have lived in your whole life so far and the world you're going to live in the rest of your life is full of betrayal. It's full of betrayal inflicted and it's full of betrayal suffered. It's just full, full of betrayal. Um... And it's not only, betrayal is not only infidelity. I mean, most people just think about infidelity. They think of romantic betrayal when they think of betrayal. But betrayal is much, much broader than that. And it can be even worse than that. For example, um, I ran across this, um, this sort of new age guru person who teaches on getting over betrayal, which what, what he or she was teaching about how to get over it was terrible. But there was this place where the person listed sort of the real betrayals he had heard in his time doing this work. And I'll try to clean these up so they're not, they don't sound too crass, but um, a person who said that their soulmate ran off with their assistant, put the runaway expenses on their business account under their name, including a new home they bought in Barbados. Another, that a cheating spouse infected her with HIV AIDS on purpose Plus, she found out there were three other lovers that he had purposefully infected with six other children she didn't know about, and she had five children of her own. Now, that's betrayal. Or a family who, rest, who 
um, rescued and adopted and nurtured a child from a third world country who turned into a drug and alcohol addict who stole from them, forged checks from their checking account, and sold their Lexus one weekend to buy drugs. Or another 88-year-old woman who had a penny-pinching spouse who suddenly died and found out that he had a million dollars in gambling debt and unpaid taxes that made her return to work at age 88 and she was legally blind. Now that's betrayal. Or a person whose boss spent 40 years worth of his retirement fund on a new lover and laughed at him when he found out and then just dropped the lover when he got tired of her. And there's more about the violation of children and so on that I'll just leave aside. I think everybody knows and has in your mind a level of betrayal that that always comes in. Um, and those are, all, those are all real, serious betrayals. Those could all happen to you or people in your family um, or have already. I think, you'd, I think we'd be surprised if we tallied up terrible betrayals in this room that we would be here all night with stories that would just undo you of people inflicting and receiving betrayal. But one of, the ish, one of the problems with the fact that these stories exist is that it's very easy for us to forget the reality that we are the inflictors and receivers of a thousand lesser betrayals that we don't even think of in those terms. For example, I feel a little betrayed that this is men's clothing. <laughs> Somebody said in the survey that I should have a clothing allowance and I felt like they should be careful what they wished for. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm trying to be respectful. I, I tried to iron my pants this morning. But um, I do like that shirt. But um, one of the things that we talked about another time is last week when we talked about devotion is that once, once you're in a relational context, by definition, everything in a relationship is either an expression of loyalty or of loyal devotion or betrayal. Everything is. You're always either moving towards the relationship or away from it. Every decision you make is either a decision of devotion or a decision of betrayal. That's why, that's why when Anyway, I'll just leave that there for now. But, like, for here, here's an example, okay? And I'll just let you know, I'm going to talk about my mom and dad. They, well, my mom would be perfectly fine with me telling you this, okay? So don't be upset on Lucy's behalf. Um, there's a period in my parents' marriage where um, my mom had this very strong hormonal imbalance, and she would just rip into my dad about stuff. Just, I mean— really bad. And he was kind of like a, he'd kind of get passive about it, and then finally when it was never going to quit, he'd just yell back, and they'd yell at each other, and he'd leave, and she'd get her way. And I watched this for probably from age about eight or nine to about 13, till my mom finally got a hysterectomy, and that started to clear up, and she found Jesus, and those two things really helped. And, and most of you who've met her know that she's really delightful, She's a really delightful person. But those were very formative years. And my wife and I have had arguments in which she, said, she has said something like, you're not even listening to me because you swore to yourself you would never let a woman treat you like your mom treated your dad. I am not Lucy. You need to listen to me. I am not abusing you. Right? Which, you know, usually that doesn't go well in an argument. Um, but, but, you know, 
my parents, you know, they didn't think, they probably weren't thinking in those years, this is a betrayal to my son's wife or to my son or to ourselves. I mean, they didn't think in those terms. They thought, we're having an argument, <laughs> you know? So we all think, we're just having an argument. But in a relationship, everything is either moving towards devotion and loyalty or away from it in betrayal. Everything is a small act of devotion and loyalty or a small act of betrayal. And once you understand that we are all in tons of relationships and you begin to look at our life in the nature of those and recognize that truth, what you realize is, what you'll realize is that you have been the inflictor and receiver of many betrayals. That there's that there, and there, yeah, there are great qualitative differences in betrayals. But there are a lot more betrayals than we normally think in our own lives. And if you hear that and you go and you think, you know, I don't know that that's really true. I don't know that the, Jesus, I think you're overblown this. Here's what I have to say to you. Either one, you're young and you just haven't had that happen to you yet, and um, that's just reality. Or two, you're just in denial um, about all the betrayals you've inflicted on people, probably. Because normally, even when we're in denial, we know when people have betrayed us. Um, but one of the things that comes across in this passage is that the disciples just don't get it. Because listen, most of us talk about Judas as the betrayer, right? Judas is the betrayer. But listen, Treachery and desertion are both betrayals. Right? I mean, if you, if you look at Mark 14, Mark 14 just doesn't just have the betrayal of Judas in it, does it? It has, um, it has the treason and treachery of Judas, right? Judas is selling out Jesus for money, literally. But there's also a rebellion and misrepresentation because when they're in the garden, Peter... What does he do? He pulls out his sword and he attacks some guy who is the slave of the high priest. He's not even an important person in the party. He's just the closest one. And he's there because he's a slave. He got told to go. He might not even want to be there. And apparently he doesn't defend himself very well because he got his ear cut off, right? And Peter's a fisherman. He's not exactly a Roman legionnaire, right? And, and but that's a, listen, that's not just Peter being nervous. That is a fundamental betrayal of everything Jesus stands for. Right? It's like the minute where Jesus is going to show this mob that he is a man of peace, not of war, Peter decides to pull out his sword. Right? Or, or think about the, just the emotional abandonment in the garden. Right? I mean, Jesus takes his disciples to the Gethsemane. He pulls in his three closest friends. It is the hardest night of his life. Um, he is in as, in as dramatic emotional need as a friend can be in. And how do his friends respond? Now, I mean, granted, they just eaten a lot of lamb and it had about five glasses of wine and it was probably about 1 a.m. But, um, but still, I mean, they just, they couldn't empathize. They didn't empathize. It said, Mark said, it was clear that when they went away that Jesus was really, really deeply troubled and they were like, they just, he said, keep watch. And they just fell asleep. I mean, that's not exactly loyalty or devotion. 
And then there's self-preserving desertion. All the disciples flee, and then there's the denial of Peter. I mean, there is all kinds of diversity, all kinds of intrigue. There is all kinds of opportunity to look at and talk about betrayal in Mark 14. And before I say a couple things about that, I want to say this, and it's important to recognize this in Mark's gospel. In Mark's gospel, the disciples, like Israel in the Old Testament, are meant to represent to us typical humanity. Right? So why, why is the ridiculous disobedience of the Jews in the Old Testament not licensed to be anti-Semitic? Because they're really dumb, right? Why wouldn't we say, well, Jews are dumb? Well, it's because every marker that there is in the Old Testament is that Jesus has selected a typical group of human people. They're just like everybody else. They're no better, they're no worse. They're just, they're typical humanity. And so when we look at the Jews, we see, we see ourselves. We see what human beings do. We don't see what Jews do, right? It's the same thing in the Gospel of Mark, particularly, that when we see what the disciples do, we're seeing what human beings do. And although it's true that later on they're going to be filled with the Spirit and that that's a, in some ways a fundamentally different thing, what's going to change on top of that is they're going to see a risen Jesus and a whole lot of things are going to change. But until all that stuff happens, these people act like typical human beings that just don't really get it yet. And so when we look at what the disciples do in all these different betrayals, we really ought to be able to see a lot about ourselves so that I can be talking about Peter, but I could just as, just as easily be saying Bob or Kathy, right? So let's take a few minutes and look at the way Jesus handles betrayal. Shall we? The first thing I want to I talk about is that Jesus is absolutely unwaveringly loyal in betrayal. So Jesus is loyal to the betrayers. It's kind of interesting and abnormal. I mean, the, the moment where Jesus is the most self-sacrificing is exactly the moment when the people who should be his closest friends are the most self-preserving. I mean, think about that. It's just, I mean, that's thick. Um, I mean, he gives his very life for them at the very moment they are putting on an unworthiness clinic. And part of the resolve is, is that this whole chapter is full of Jesus knowing exactly what's coming, exactly what's happening. Like if you look at the passages in here, he says, while they were reclining at the table, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, somebody who's eating with me. I mean, he tells it before it even happens in every case. And then he tells them, you're all going to desert me. And then he tells Peter, you're going to disown me three times before sunrise. So none of this is a surprise. Jesus knows it's all going to happen. And he st still goes completely forward with what he was going to do. One of the things that's kind of, kind of funny about this passage, and I'm going to talk more about the communion part next week, because we're going to have communion. But, I mean, do you, do you see that he institutes the great confession of the church right in the middle of the great denial? I mean, think about the irony of that. I mean, what is communion for the church? Like, when we have the bread and wine and we do communion, right, the Lord's Supper, what are we doing? Right? That's the great confession. It's the great witness of the church. It is, every time we do that, we say, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. He is Lord, he's king, he's our leader, master, God. He is, and we 
confess our faith, right? And Jesus institutes that right when he's saying, all of you are going to be deniers. That's kind of, it's kind of funny, right? So Jesus is unwaveringly loyal and he knows exactly what's going to happen, right? I want to skip ahead a little bit. The second, is, second thing is this, is that Jesus um, takes betrayal very, very seriously. One of the things that comes across in this passage is that Jesus is an extremely morally serious figure. I, and I, the reason I, I, I wanted to talk about this is because I think this is the most difficult thing for us to accept about Jesus. Um, when he predicts that he's going to be betrayed, he attaches a warning to it, right? He says, the Son of Man will go just as it's written about him, right? It's, it's going to happen. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him to have, to have not been born. You see, he's saying something is going to happen. In God's providence, it's assured that this event is going to happen. But that doesn't take away the moral culpability of the person who's going to do it. There's a number of places in Scripture that teach this, but what Scripture does teach us is that God has preordained a lot of things, and that has no impact on your moral culpability, your responsibility for your behavior. None. It, do, it can't ever excuse you. And so even, the, even this really critical moment in salvation history, he makes very clear with the person sitting right there that they're choosing freely this thing that has been foreordained, and they have on them the moral responsibility for it. <clears throat> also, in a number of places, he actually confronts the person when they're doing the betrayal. So, when Judas actually comes to show the soldiers who Jesus is and his group of disciples with a kiss, I mean, Jesus takes that opportunity to look Judas in the eye and say, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Now think about that. He doesn't say me. He could just say me, right? Are you betraying me with a kiss? I'm Jesus. He tries, he puts that in the context of who he is. He's the Son of Man. He's like, Judas, do you realize what you're, what you're doing right now? You, you are gonna betray the Son of Man the one who's going to come on the clouds of heaven and judge all of creation forever. You're going to betray him with a kiss right now? Right? Same thing with Peter. If you look at the passage um, in, in Luke's gospel also, in Mark it doesn't explicitly say this, but in Luke's gospel it says that when Peter denies Jesus for the third time, um, Jesus is actually within sight distance and Jesus actually turns and looks right at him. And Luke says that that's the moment where Peter remembers what Jesus says. And, you know, if you're a parent, you know sometimes it only takes a look to confront, right? So, um, Jesus is interested in confronting betrayal, Right? And you see this also with the disciples. I mean, Jesus doesn't go, oh, you guys want to sleep? That's cool. Right? He doesn't say that. He comes back and he says, 
You guys, seriously? I mean, you can't stay up for a few minutes and just pray or watch or something to the point where, I mean, and he does it three times. He wakes him up a second time, and then he comes back, and they're just like, I don't know what to tell you. And he warns him, because remember, he, he warns Peter. He says, Peter, buddy, you need to be busy praying right now. Because, you know, your spirit is willing, but look at you. You're asleep. Your flesh is weak, and it's going to get tested really soon. Now think, now think about that. Put that in your noodle and turn it around, because it'll make, make some things happen. Now think about this. Jesus has already prophesied that Peter is going to disown him three times. But then Jesus is still genuinely instructing him to pray so that it won't happen. You see, if you don't have room in your head for God's secret providential will and his revealed will to be working together, that both can be fully genuine wills of God and that they work together in a way and you start to work that out if you can, then it's stuff kind of gets weird, right? But he's telling Peter, he's like, Peter, you need to pray, right? Jesus is constantly confronting to try to make sure the betrayal doesn't happen or he confronts the betrayal when it happens because he doesn't just go, well, yeah, you betrayed me. Eh, not that big a deal. And one of the reasons this is, I think, sensitive to us is, is that we generally psychologically divide the classification of betrayal into two different parts. There's betrayals that make somebody no longer a person, which is basically people who have engaged in betrayals w worse than you. And then there are the kind of betrayals that we want to be left, let off the hook about. Right? So if, so we think of people who, you know, violate children or commit treason and kill people or whatever. There's, there's usually, most people have some sin or something that if somebody commi commits it, they're sort of no longer a person. They're just like an animal or a monster, right? And it kind of has this connotation that, you know, you no longer need to treat them with the kind of dignity a person requires because they've now moved outside of the realm of person, right? And so you can do whatever you want to them, right? A terrorist or something like that, you know? Um, but really with that, I mean, f first of all, I just don't think that's biblical at all. I think everybody is in God's image and everybody's a person even after they do anything. Even if we have to, even if we have to do very, very painful and stringent things in, in terms of societal responsibility, I don't think we can ever treat somebody like they're not a person. But on top of that, it ends up becoming a defense mechanism whereby we can feel like we should be let off the hook for our betrayals because we're not like that. And it's amazing to me how fast um, I get past my betrayals and how fast I expect people to get past my betrayals. And the whole don't be judgmental thing has just fed into this all the more. Um, it's a, it is just amazing how people can you know, you can have a, a husband or somebody like gamble away the life savings of a family. And then when it's found out, he goes, yeah, I did that. Yeah, that was probably bad. And then later on, you know, it comes up and he goes, well, quit judging me for that. You know, that's, that's, that's in the past. <laughs> you're like, yeah, well, you threw away 10 years of our savings, right? I mean, we just, we're like, you know, it's over. It's been a week, you know? 
And we really want to be let off the hook. And the, th- the, the thing is, is that um, here's the thing about betrayals. They don't expire. There is no, there's no statute of limitations on redemption in relationship to betrayals. You commit a betrayal and you've committed a betrayal, period. That's it. You, and you can't, you can't do restitution. It's not like you bumped into somebody's car and you can pay for it to get fixed. You can do restitution with items. You can't do restitution with betrayals. It is impossible Um, Betrayals are by definition something we're immediately guilty of and forever guilty of. And the only remedy, the only redemption for betrayal is forgiveness and restoration. That's, That's all there is. There's nothing else. And if we don't realize that, we will never, you can't ever get free of either a betrayal inflicted or received. So I want to talk for a few minutes about Jesus restoring betrayers, okay? Sorry, I'm not very loud today. Jesus is interested in restoring betrayers. Okay, he's very interested in that. Um, And he is the only one, um, he sort of has a monopoly on that business, okay? Uh, he, has, he has some competitors, but no serious ones. Um, it, but here's the thing that, you, that we just, we really have, you have to get this, okay? You have to get this. And I don't just say this out of biblical warrant. I say this out of, ex- of experience as a pastor, trying to walk with people through betrayals suffered in marriages and in childhoods and, and so on, okay? Uh, this is very important. Jesus does not redeem betrayals through simple forgiveness. Okay? That's not how it works. It does not work that way. Um, Jesus forces our face into the thing before we can get free of it. Because um, the kind of transformation that he's after so that we won't continue to be that kind of betrayer requires it. Okay, so Jesus is always going to force us into into the reality of the betrayal and the gravity of the betrayal, okay? First off, you have got to accept that you received or you committed a betrayal and that that's what it is, that's what it will always be, it doesn't run out, it is what it is, and that you did it or that you received it and that's what it is. Right, in Luke twenty-two sixty, 60, when Peter said it that third time, Jesus looks right at him, and Peter looks, sees Jesus looking at him, and he, re, and he realizes what he's done. And that look, which wasn't particularly redemptive, it caused Peter to emotionally implode and go away and sob as hard as a man can sob, was the first step in Peter's redemption. It was necessary. Jesus is going to make you feel bad about your betrayals. And it's necessary because you have to say, I did that. I totally, I did, I did that. I am on the hook. If you cannot 
let yourself accept you're on the hook. You can't experience redemption because nobody can ever trust somebody who can't be honest with themselves. Right? How can the offended party ever trust you if you can't say, I did that? There can't be restoration. And the second thing is the gravity. It's one thing to say, I did something wrong. It's another thing to say, I did that, and it goes that deep. Um, Peter's full restoration comes in the Gospel of John in chapter 21. It starts this way. Afterwards, Jesus appeared to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That's up in Galilee now. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, that's Doubting Thomas, right? Nathaniel from Canaan, Galilee. The sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, the other two of the three big hitters in the twelve, right? And two other disciples were together. And then they went fishing, right? And it says, now this is the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished eating, they had had this meal kind of on the beach. And they're all sitting there. It's not just Jesus and Peter. It's like six other dudes, right? Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Right? He's sitting with his five best friends. Back in his old profession, in his hometown, with the stability of his old life, okay? Do you really love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And, and here's what, that's what John says after that. He says, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, Right? Jesus brought it up, right? He's going to restore Peter. He's going to put Peter back into this ministry, and he, he brings it up. He's like, he, it's subtle, but not very subtle. And he doesn't, he doesn't berate him, but he comes right in, and he brings it up three times. And listen, the, that word for hurt is one of the stronger words for hurt that Greek has available. I mean, it, it crushed him. It crushed Peter for him to do that, because— he was so ashamed of that. And Jesus came right in on it and he said, do you love me? And he, he, he heard him and he cut him that deeply, but at the same time, he gave him the opportunity to reverse what he had said a third time to Jesus' face. And it created the opportunity for him to commission Peter back to ministry because listen, Peter wasn't restored. He had seen Jesus twice. He was glad he was alive. That's fantastic. But Jesus was, but Peter was going back to fishing. That's what he was doing. It was over, but it wasn't restored. And this was necessary. Jesus' compassion and his moral seriousness, his sternness, his his desire to make sure that Peter accepted the reality and the gravity of his betrayal so that he could get free of it. Because if you don't dig all the way down, you didn't get there, and it's not going to work.
Okay, let me, let me wind this up as fast as I can. If we're going to be restored, and listen, we're, we're going to be, we're, we're going to be betrayers, okay? You're going to be a betrayer. You already are. You're going to be one again. You need to get this right. We need to get this straight. I'm sorry, this isn't a funny subject. This is kind of a dour sermon, isn't it? We've got to get straight. Okay, here's, here's what we're going to have to do, okay? We're going to have to... Okay, we're going to have to lose the denial. We're going to have to accept the reality of our betrayals, and we're going to have to see everything we do in a relationship as moving towards or away from the one we're in relationship to, okay? So let me give you, let me give you an example I'm kind of ashamed of that's pretty recent um, to try to give you, to try to get specific enough here because we tend to think too generally. So my wife has been away for a week and a half, right? I miss her. Um, and so I'm by myself, which means I'm staying up later than normal. I'm not quite as mentally tired as normal. It's just, it's a, that's a bad temptation scenario, right? And so, you know, I have um, tracking stuff on all my computers, but I have a tablet that we don't have adequate um, tracking software for yet. And so I'm in my bed and I'm watching trailers for movies, basically, right? And I get to this one point where, I can't remember which trailer I was watching, but you know how YouTube has other things you might want to watch in the right-hand column there? So I'm going along and there's, um, there's a video in the right-hand column um, that's Britney Spears' video on something. It's like, blame it on me or some kind of, you know, whatever. And, um, and I really wanted to watch that video. I was just alone and my wife wasn't around. And, you know, um, I didn't watch that video. And um, Dan and I decided the next day he'd better, we just, he'd just go ahead and hold on to my tablet for a couple of days until my wife gets back and we can get that sorted out. Um, but listen, that's still a betrayal because I really wanted to. There's levels here. There's gradients, right? I could have an affair. I could be addicted to pornography. I could salve my loneliness on music videos of pretty 20-year-olds singing. That's less, that's less than being addicted, right? That's less. That's still totally not devotional towards the one my devotions to be set on. And then there's just wanting to. And they're all different levels. But if we can't own these things in our own hearts, whatever level they're at, and whatever level we wish we were at, we won't see ourselves as constantly moving in a direction of devotion or betrayal. And we'll never have a reality, a sense of real, what sin really is in our hearts. We'll never see gravity to it. And so we'll never be really motivated to get free of it. And we've got to see the gravity of it. And then we also have to see that the remedy for betrayal is restoration. And that can only come from the one we've betrayed. It, it has to come. Forgiveness is always a bill paid by the forgiver. Always. The perpetrator can never pay the forgiveness bill. They can restore a measurable thing that was broken or lost, but, but there is always a remainder of betrayal that can never be paid. That bill, the betrayal bill, always is paid by the forgiver. 
The betrayer can long for the forgiveness, but the betrayed has to give it. And so the, the fundamental difference between Judas and Peter is that Peter longed for the forgiveness from Jesus, and then Jesus freely gave it. Judas, Judas couldn't. He went back to the chief priests for forgiveness, right? It says in Matthew that he— he felt bad about it. He realized he did something wrong. So he went back to the temple. And he went back to the chief priest. And he says, I don't want the money anymore. And they said, what do you want from us? And he throws the money in the temple. And he said, I didn't want to do this. And he goes and he kills himself. You see, he didn't understand. He didn't, he wouldn't let himself. His pride wouldn't allow him to get free of the betrayal. Right? He, he, he wanted to undo the betrayal. You can't undo betrayal. You can't. You can go back in your mind and you can try to convince yourself to do something else. Wish you did something else. Cry and hurt yourself and cut yourself and pile up bills of people you talk to to try to feel better. You can never undo a betrayal. You can only long and desire the forgiveness of the betrayed. And there is one who is always the betrayed, the greater betrayed in every of our betrayals, and that is the one who made and owns everything that we betray and loves everything that we betray and is betrayed wider and more deeply than we can betray anything, and that is God, and that is Christ and he is the betrayed one who is always ready to give compassion and forgiveness to the one who longs for it. Because he did it in the moment of betrayal. That's part of the proof. Jesus intentionally gave his devotion when it, there was nothing but betrayal and intrigue and desertion around him so that you in 2011 could know that Christ will pay the forgiveness bill. He will offer you compassion, the thing you can never get free of, that can never run out, that you are on the hook for, that is deeper than you've even allowed yourself to see. He will forgive and restore. And he will ultimately often Use that betrayal for some great purpose in your life. I mean, these betrayers became the 12 great witnesses and martyrs of the church. Thomas in India, Peter crucified upside down in Rome. These men went out and they died for, because they would never betray again. Christ can do something with your betrayal. He could fundamentally transform the kind of person you are. He can use you to help people who have both suffered the being inflicted with and, and, and inflicting the kind of betrayal you've had. You can grow emotionally in a way in your ability to forgive through Christ that you can then help many other people. Listen, unforgiveness and the anxiety that comes from it is a rot in our whole culture. And, and, and you could learn how to be free of it. And the joy that could come in your life could attract other people to the gospel. You're, I mean, it's limitless what Christ could do with somebody who had been under the sentence of death and is free. 
and who isn't afraid anymore. I have always wanted to be the friend of a better man. I don't know about you. I, I have always, I always wanted my wife's love to be a greater love than mine because I thought it would inspire me to be a better man. But that, guess what? That's what she wants too. She wants my love to be greater than hers so that I can inspire her to be better. I've always wanted that of male friends. I've all, you know, I want to be a resource to my friends. I want my friends to be able to look up to me and say, you know what, man, there's some things about Nick that I just wish I was more like that. But you know what? I want somebody like that. I want friends that I look up to and are better men than me. And that, that longing is fulfilled in this man. If you need someone to look up to in the area of betrayal— You've got a great option right here. If you'll accept the reality and the gravity of it, if you'll longingly go to the one who can give the forgiveness, which is Christ and Christ alone, and if you will be desirous of the transformation it will create in you and be hopeful about the use that Christ can make of a betrayer. Father, thank you for... um, letting your betrayals be inscripturated faithfully. Thank you for putting them in an ironic tangle with your moment of faithfulness to us. Thank you for giving hope to us as betrayers, both receiving and inflicting. And we pray, God, that you would help us to do what we must do to accept the reality and the gravity, to come to you for forgiveness and to be hopeful about what you'll do when you transform us. We commit ourselves to you to do this in us and we pray that you would help us to be a Peter, not a Judas in this. We pray that you'd restore us and send us out to feed your sheep. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.